And go ahead and open your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 24. Luke 24. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles, it's page 885. Luke 24. I want to say it is great to be back with my congregation, back in the pulpit. Uh, this last seven weeks was the longest I have gone without preaching in 17 years. Uh, so you can pray that I haven't forgotten how to do it. Um, that'd be appreciated. Luke 24. Thought it'd be appropriate for my first Sunday back to introduce the Bible. Uh, hopefully you've heard of it before. Luke 24. We're going to begin this morning by reading verses 13 through 17. Luke 24, reading verses 13 through 27. This is God's word. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Clopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, the man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some of our women in our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back, saying that, he had even, saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went with us to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see him. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. May God give us ears to hear his word. There's an old saying that goes, fools rush in where angels fear to tread. The idea is that sometimes people try these crazy outlandish things that are uh, so audacious that even supernatural beings would not attempt them. I confess that I felt a bit that way creating this sermon. Uh, the purpose of this sermon is to introduce the Bible, to summarize the entire Bible. Uh, but you think about it, that's an enormous challenge. I mean, the Bible's a big book. It's a huge book. Most Bibles are well over 1,000 pages of tiny, tiny print. The Bible contains 3,237 individual characters mentioned by name. And of the entire Bible, there are 3, 000, pardon me, 31,102 verses. And the idea of summarizing all of that into sort of an introduction to orient people to what's in the Bible, that was a little bit intimidating. What's even more challenging, the Bible is a deep book. Now, we're not talking about just a catalog of names. It considers some of the deepest realities in human experience. It talks about the origin of evil and why there's suffering, how we can know God. What's more, the Bible is worldview-shaping. It contains information about the purpose of life, why we're here, world history, why things are the way that they are. It's a deep book. And again, trying to distill all of that down into one 45-minute message, it's a challenge. And yet there's another old saying. It's this, don't miss the forest for the trees. 
Don't get so preoccupied with the individual details that you lose the big picture. And that's exactly what we're going to try to do in this morning's sermon. Get the big picture, distill the entire Bible down into one sermon. If you happen to be visiting with us today, I should let you know that this is not a normal sermon. Normally, we study our way through different passages in the Bible, chapters, verses. Uh, We might take one passage this week, the next week, go on to the next one. We talk about its meaning, about its implications, applications, and that's the way we work our way through entire books of the Bible. For instance, next week, we're going to be back in 1 Thessalonians, which we've been studying for quite some time. I'd encourage you to be here. But today, my passage is, in a sense, Genesis 1 through Revelation 22. Anybody read ahead uh, in preparation for this morning's sermon? And what we're getting at is, what is the Bible all about? What's really the big message of this book? If this were, say, the only sermon you ever heard in your entire life, what would you want to know about the Bible? Or, similarly, if you're trying to share the gospel with somebody, introduce them to the Bible, and and you're looking for a handy resource to direct them to, maybe this sermon would be the place to turn. That's where, by God's grace, we're going to today. And to begin our thinking this morning, I want you to think through this question. How has the Bible influenced the history of the world? Maybe don't say anything out loud, but just think on that for yourself. How has the Bible influenced the history of the world? Uh, This will be helpful because there's there's no coincidence that the Bible has had the impact that it's had. Uh, That's a pointer to the nature of the book that it is. Now, if you've probably heard before, the Bible is the best-selling book and most widely translated book by a million miles. I mean, when you compare the Bible to the distribution of other books, I mean, it's, it's amazing. We often talk about what's the second best-selling book in human history, and there's debate there. Is it Pilgrim's Progress? Is it Sherlock Holmes? Is it Lord of the Rings? Is it Mao's Little Red Book? There's debate over number two, but there's absolutely no debate over number one. The Bible and the Bible by a long shot is the most distributed book in the history of the world. To be precise about this, we think that about 5 billion, B, billion with a B, copies of the Bible have been distributed. If you want to compare that, take the next five contenders, add them together, multiply that by 10, and you're still not up to where the Bible is. That illustrates how far the Bible has reached. In addition to that, no other book on the planet has been translated into more languages than the Bible has. Uh, do you know how many languages the Bible has been translated into? Uh, At least some, if not all of the Bible, has been translated into around 3,000 languages. And honestly, we need more Bible translators. So if you have a knack with languages or a concern in this area, uh, talk to me. I can make some connections for you because there are still other languages that have no verses of the Bible uh, in its language. But 3,000 have the Bible. The second most translated book, do you know what it was? Anybody? Pinocchio. And Pinocchio has been translated into 260 languages. Now, because of this, we should not be surprised at all that the Bible has had an enormous impact on pretty much every sphere of life. I'm talking about science, the arts, world history, politics, jurisprudence, philosophy, literature, language. There's virtually no aspect of human life that's not been shaped by the Bible. Let me give you a few illustrations of this. You go to any major art museum in the world, and what are you going to find but a disproportionate number of pieces inspired by the Bible? I mean, even go to the Ball State Art Museum, which I enjoy visiting from time to time. Uh, A lot of art inspired by the Bible. If you're at all familiar with the principles of law, you know, particularly in Western civilization, principles like you're innocent until you're proven guilty, uh, the role of eyewitnesses, the ability that that you have to face your accusers, uh, which crime capital offenses, all of that comes directly from the Bible. 
Consider literature. Everything from Shakespeare to Moby Dick to Agatha Christie to George Orwell, they're packed with quotes from the Bible, allusions to the Bible, references to biblical stories. I actually tried to track down for this sermon the number of allusions to Scripture in William Shakespeare, and there are literally too many to count. Uh, They're still waiting on somebody to do a PhD in how many biblical allusions Shakespeare had, because, again, it's too many to count at this point. You can think of education. Did you know that the first schools for the common man were inspired by the Bible? Not schools for the aristocracy, those have existed forever, but for common, ordinary people, those were inspired by the Bible. What it was was rabbis and pastors gathering children around them, teaching them how to learn to read so that they could learn to read the Bible. One more area. Think of world history. Try to understand the ancient Roman Empire without reference to the spread of Christianity. Or try to understand the Middle Ages without reference to the Christian church. Or maybe the Reformation without reference to the Bible. Even modern-day events like the Great Awakening, the American Revolution, World War I, the Cold War, they're indecipherable without reference to the Bible. Only those severely lacking in education would actually question the influence that this book has had on our world. Now, one last thing I'll say under this point. There's no doubt at all that the Bible has been frequently abused and misused to justify sinful agendas. We should be upfront about this. It's tragic, we lament this, but there are evil people who have used the Bible for evil purposes. You might think of the KKK or the Nazis, Jim Jones, they've all twisted the Bible to make it say things that it actually doesn't say that exists, and we we bemoan that. And yet just because some maniac can use a hammer to bludgeon somebody doesn't mean a good carpenter can't use that same hammer to build a beautiful house. And so also the Bible, get this, the Bible has been the major driving force behind virtually all of the movements that serve to bless civilization. I know that sounds so outrageous, especially in our culture today, but please look into this, test this for yourself. The Bible has been the major driving force behind virtually all of the movements that serve to improve human civilization. Whether it be the abolition of slavery or universal education, literacy or the demise of dictatorships, the rise of democracy or women's rights, civil rights or labor reform, prison reform. I mean, you could keep going. What's the driving force of the Bible? Just read, say, the biographies of somebody like William Wilberforce or Harriet Tubman, Frederick Douglass or Susan B. Anthony, Martin Luther King or Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Again, what motivated these individuals who served to bless civilization? Nine times out of ten, it was the Bible. Even if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, maybe you're even an atheist, in in which case we're delighted you're here. Sincerely, thank you for coming. But even if you're not a believer, you cannot deny that the Bible has had an enormous and undeniable impact on virtually every area of life. And this is why, in my mind, it's a little bit odd that public schools don't require more Bible reading? I mean, regardless of whether you think it's true or not, because of its enormous influence on history, art, politics, philosophy, you'd expect high school students to be at least familiar with the Bible as there with, say, William Shakespeare or, you know, Catcher in the Rye. I don't think... Raise your hand if you read Romeo and Juliet in school growing up. Essentially everybody. Raise your hand if your public school required you to read any of the Bible. One hand. That, doesn't that seem peculiar, again, given its influence on history and civilization? At the same time, it's not all that surprising that public schools don't require more Bible reading. And here's the reason why. Reading the Bible actually does things to people. 
You can't say the same thing about, say, Shakespeare or Catcher in the Rye. You can read those books and go away totally unchanged. But the Bible, the funny th- funniest thing happens when people start reading the Bible. More often than not, they start changing. Their thinking changes. Their behavior changes. What they value starts changing. They start changing on the inside. And what I think is going on is that our society is so scared of that that we'd rather keep people away from the most influential book in the history of the world than risk them being changed by this book. Without question, the Bible has influenced human history far more than any other book. Again, if you don't believe that, please look look into this for yourself. And this is why, even if you're a dyed-in-the-wool atheist, we would be delighted for you to attend any of our Bible teaching gatherings. You know, even if you think the Bible's all nonsense, but you want a better understanding of it just to understand, say, classic literature better, uh, come on out to, say, Wednesday Night Bible Study, where we're currently studying the Book of Romans. Or come to Sunday School, where we're currently studying 1 Timothy. Or come to our sermons, where, again, next Sunday, Lord willing, we're going to resume studying 1 Thessalonians. Uh, Feel free to be up front and tell us, you know, I I think this is all nonsense. I think it's just legends and myths, but I want a better understanding of the Bible. We, We would respect that, but you're always welcome to attend. That's just a little bit about the impact of the Bible on human history. Quickly, let's talk about a second question. What is the Bible? What is this book that has so shaped our world? Well, to begin our thinking here, I want you to look at the table of contents of your Bible. Uh, Turn with me, if you would, to the table of contents. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles, that's actually page three. Table of contents. And if you look at the table of contents of the Bible, you'll see all these different names listed. Names of books. You've got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, so forth. You see that? You'll also see there are, there's the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's basically part one and part two of the Bible. And what you need to realize is that these are 66 individual books. I realize they're all bound together in one volume, but they're actually 66 different books written by different authors. So, for instance, Moses wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Uh, David wrote about half of the Psalms. Peter wrote First and Second Peter, so forth. Different books by different human authors bound together in one volume. And here's something very important to get. These books were written over a period of about 1,500 years. Okay, a lot of people don't get this. Don't, don't imagine like the Bible just fell out of the sky like this. Um, I, I think I thought that growing up. Uh, that's not actually true. It was a long process of about 1,500 years, 40 different human authors writing these books that were then collected together in this one volume. Now, we're going to get into in a moment why they're all together in one volume, but that's, at least at this point, what I want you to get. The Bible is more like a library of books, a collection of books all bound together. Now, here's something else that I want you to get. The different books of the Bible and parts of the Bible are in constant conversation with one another. Uh, This, to me, is so utterly fascinating. I'm going to try and illustrate what this means in a minute. But the different books, different sections of the Bible are in constant conversation with one another. Earlier parts will predict events that take place in latter parts. Latter parts reference back to events that took place earlier in earlier parts. This event will typify that event. This passage will say it's a fulfillment of that passage. It's in constant conversation with itself, which is, again, really quite unique, uh, the degree to which the Bible does this. Uh, to illustrate this, take a look at this chart up here. What this is an attempt to illustrate is the 60, uh, 63,000... Where's my pointer here? Is it even working? 
Not even working. Oh, there it is. 63,779 cross-references in the Bible. Uh, I think a lot of Christians know about this, but they don't realize how pervasive it is. We think that maybe there's like, you know, a couple of dozen passages in the Bible that are quoted here and there. It's actually more like 64,000. And what this is illustrating, this here is Genesis. This is Revelation. Right here is where the New Testament begins, and that shows you how big the Old Testament is compared to the New Testament. And all of these loops are passages where they're either citing it, alluding to it, this is a fulfillment of that. Really rather fascinating, and, just, and this is just for fun. Uh, but what book do you think this is right here, right? Dead in the center. Th- these lines, by the way, are supposed to illustrate the length of different books. What's the longest chapter? Psalm 119. So it's almost as if the entire Bible hinges on the longest chapter, which is, what's the theme of Psalm 119? It's about the greatness and the glory of the Bible. Rather fascinating. And again, the same can't be said about most other religious books. You take something like the Koran, Book of Mormon, uh, the, the, the scriptures that the Hindus use, there's nothing to this extent going on where there's this internal conversation within it. What this means is that you can explore cross-references virtually forever. Uh, hopefully you've got a good Bible with the cross-references in the margin. Raise your hand if you've got a Bible with like cross-references in the margin. Thankfully, almost everybody. Uh, realize those are not chosen arbitrarily. They didn't just choose those willy-nilly or something like that. They're designed to get you into this conversation in the Bible to the point where you're like, oh my goodness, this is, this, the Word of God really is living and active, and I can see that in the way in which it's conversing with itself. Well, having said all of that, we still haven't yet defined what the Bible is. I mean, what is this book? And maybe you don't say anything out loud, but ask yourself this question, what is the Bible? I mean, is it a book of rules? That's what I thought the Bible was growing up, a bunch of rules. You know, I, I grew up in church, but I didn't read the Bible a whole, whole bunch myself. And I thought it was like this catalog of, you know, don't drink, don't chew, don't smoke, don't go with the girls that do. That's what I kind of thought the Bible was. And maybe that's what you think the Bible is. Others look at the Bible as sort of a collection of virtue stories to emulate. Uh, Maybe like Aesop's fables or something like that. Be like David, be like Moses, be like Peter, Paul, Mary. Others look at the Bible as sort of a handbook of end times prophecies. uh, Kind of this comprehensive horoscope for the human race. Uh, You know, who's going to win the next presidential election and when the war in Ukraine is going to end and how human history is going to wrap up. Is the Bible any of those things? Is the Bible some of those things? What really is the Bible? Well, I can't answer this question any better than author Sally Lloyd-Jones. I know I've read this quote to you several times before, but until I find a quote that says it better, I'll continue to read her quote. But regarding the Bible, she says this. She says, some people think that the Bible is a book of rules, telling you what you should and shouldn't do. The Bible certainly does have some rules in it. They show you how life works best. But the Bible isn't mainly about you and what you should be doing. It's about God and what he has done. Other people think the Bible is a book of heroes, showing you people to copy. The Bible does have some heroes in it, but as you'll soon find out, most of the people in the Bible aren't heroes at all. They make some big mistakes, sometimes on purpose. They get afraid and run away. At times, they're downright mean. A lot of people don't get that. They're like, you know, be like David. Well, uh, think about that. David committed an adultery with Bathsheba and killed a whole bunch of people and you know, died in somewhat of a you know, disgrace. If, if you look at the Bible fundamentally as hero stories to emulate, you'll have problems with a whole lot of passages. No, the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. You see, the best thing about this story is it's true. 
There are lots of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story, the story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. It takes the whole Bible to tell this story, and at the center of the story, there's a baby. He's like the missing piece in a puzzle, the piece that makes all the other pieces fit together, and suddenly you can see a beautiful picture. You get that? That's at least what I believe the Bible is, this comprehensive epic telling about how God is saving a people from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation by grace for his glory through the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus. I believe that this view of the Bible is actually Jesus' view of the Bible. Did you catch in the passage we read to introduce this sermon what Jesus said about Scripture? Listen to Luke 24. Verse 24, uh, pardon me, Luke 24, 25. Jesus said, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in the scriptures the things concerning himself. If we don't learn how to read Moses and the prophets and all of the scriptures as culminating in Jesus, we're not properly reading the Bible. And it's very likely that we might be twisting it to justify some agenda like we talked about others do earlier. Here's one final detail about what the Bible is. Realize that Christians believe that every word of the Bible is divinely inspired. True Christians believe that every word of the Bible is divinely inspired. God supernaturally controlled Moses or Samuel or David or Peter or Paul or whoever so that they only wrote exactly what God wanted them to write. Nothing more, nothing less. In believing this, we Christians are simply following Jesus' view of Scripture. And again, if you want to test this, maybe read one of the Gospels with a special eye to Jesus' view of Scripture. It was Jesus who said in John 10.35, Scripture cannot be broken. It was Jesus who said in Matthew 5.18, Until heaven and earth pass away, not a jot, not a tittle will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And it was Jesus who said in Matthew 24.35, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. You see, for Jesus, what the Bible says, God says. I'd encourage you to memorize that phrase. What the Bible says, God says. That is the Christian view of Scripture. And again, we're simply following Jesus in this regard. And this, at the end of the day, explains why all these 66 books are bound together in one volume. You know, why these 66, no more, no less? It's because we believe that these are the 66 inspired by God. These are the ones through which God is, God is speaking. And ultimately, that is why the Bible has had such a huge impact on human civilization. It's because it's the Word of God. Quickly, let's talk about the four main acts in the Bible. You know, I've made the case that the Bible is diverse, you know, written over 1,500 years, 40 different human authors. We haven't even yet gotten into the different languages. It's actually written in three languages on three different continents. So there's huge diversity, and yet there's unity since it's God speaking through it all. But what are sort of the four acts of the story? Now, if we were to summarize the entire storyline of the Bible, we could use these four words. Ready? Creation, fall, grace, glory. I'd actually encourage you to memorize those. It might be handy even in evangelism. Creation, fall, grace, glory. Get those four words that the entire message of the Bible in a nutshell. Let me quickly say a word about each of these. Creation. The Bible recounts the creation of the universe in the first two chapters, Genesis 1 and 2. It's here we see how God spoke and everything came into being. Uh, earth and dry land and plants and animals and creeping things and humans. God made absolutely everything. And what did he say when he saw everything they had made? Behold, it's very good. But not only did God create the entire universe, Genesis 2 zeroes focus, special focus in on his creation of the human race. 
God makes a man and a woman, Adam and Eve. He makes them very different from animals. And this is obvious today if you just look around. I mean, I, I hope you can see many ways in which we humans are manifestly different from plants and animals. And what the Bible says is that what's underlying this is the fact that we're created in the image of God. Nothing else in creation is like this. Yes, rocks and trees, they reflect the glory of God, but we, unique, are in the image of God. It's like Genesis 1.27 says, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Whoever you are, one of the things I can tell you about yourself is that you've been made in the image of God. What that means is that there are ways that you're like God, that rocks and plants and animals are not like God. And what that's there, it's there in part to drive you to want to know your creator, to have a personal relationship with Almighty God. So by the end of Genesis 2, what we have is this, a perfect creation, perfect, beautiful universe, perfect man and woman in the Garden of Eden, living happily, obeying God happily. That's the end of Genesis chapter 2. But if you look around at our world today, you can tell that things are obviously not that way anymore. Uh, we look around and the world today is a mess. I mean, we've got death and bloodshed, we've got rape and murder, selfishness and pride, dysfunctional families, divorce. And you might be thinking, what in the world happened? If God created this world good, perfect, beautiful, what on earth took place that it's the way that it is now? Well, that brings us to the second act of the Bible, the fall. The fall. Our fall into sin and the massive consequences of that are recorded in Genesis 3. To quickly summarize what happened, Adam and Eve, they're in the garden, they've got one command. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And yet they couldn't obey that command. They wouldn't obey that command. Eve ate, she shared with her husband, he ate, and realized that when that happened, that plunged all of humanity and really all of creation into sin and corruption. Uh, Romans 8 describes it as this creation is in bondage to decay. Instantly, all of a sudden, mosquitoes started to bite, and snakes developed poison. Instantly, thorns and thistles began to grow. Marriages began to fall apart. People began experiencing shame and guilt. Everything started to decay because of the sin that Adam and Eve introduced into our creation. And this explains so well why our world is the way that it is today. I mean, you look at it, I don't know about you, but I can look at our creation and see that it's almost perfect, but something's really messed up. You know, you look at, say, a beautiful mountain range, and you're like, that is awe-inspiring. Uh, but then you look at, you know, like your parents getting dementia, and you're like, oh my goodness, that is so sad. You look at a baby's smile, and you're like, that's one of the most joyful things I've ever seen in my entire life. Uh, but then you see, you know, a drug addict who's destroying his life, and you're like, what, what has gone wrong? The Bible explains this so well, perfectly created in God's image, corrupted by our sin. Well, realize God could have left us in that plight. He could have ended the Bible in Genesis 3. And that would be a shorter Bible, admittedly, but uh, not a very happy one. The nice thing, though, is that God is a God of grace and mercy. And after we had fallen and corrupted this creation, God put into effect this plan of grace. And that's really what the majority of the Bible is about, grace. So from Genesis 3.15 all the way to Revelation 19.10, you've got to look at that as one giant act of grace. Now, obviously, there are all sorts of different events and movements and characters going on during that time period, but it really is God showing grace towards sinners who don't deserve it. This epic of grace, it begins in Genesis 3.15. I know I've, again, read this passage many times, but to the devil, God says this, I will put enmity between you, devil, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, 
He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Uh, The entire rest of the Bible could be seen as that verse in play. Uh, Satan's people warring against God's people, the kingdom of God against the kingdom of darkness. Now, in summarizing this section, obviously, we're leaving out an enormous amount of material. Like I said, there's something like 3,237 characters in the Bible, uh, and most of them fall in this time period. Uh, But most of our famous, uh, favorite Bible stories take place in this section that I'm calling grace. It's in this section we've got Noah and the flood. We've got Abraham and the beginning of the Hebrews. We've got Moses and the Exodus. David and the golden age of Israel. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. The creation of the church. The sending of the Spirit. The mission to reach the world and to make disciples. But again, get the point that this is all under the heading of God's grace towards sinners. We messed up God's perfect world, we corrupted it, we introduced a poison into it, but God is showing us grace. Through Noah, through Abraham, through David, and ultimately through Jesus, he's rescuing those who deserve his wrath. Well, this brings us to the final act of the Bible, what we're calling glory. Glory, and this covers really only the latter two chapters of the Bible, uh, really two and a half chapters of the Bible. But here is where we see the story come to resolution. Praise God, God's not going to let Satan have the final word. He's not going to let evil have the final say. No, in the end, Satan will be defeated, the wicked cast into hell, uh, all wrongs be made right, creation recreated back into the way that it was supposed to be all along, and God will be glorified. It's in this section we see the way in which how at any moment Jesus will descend literally from the sky, riding on a white horse. The dead will be raised and judged. Jesus will bring his heavenly kingdom to earth. Everything that the prophets foretold will come to pass. And the glory of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the seas. Listen to this description of this beautiful scene, this scene of glory. Revelation 21.3 Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as, his, as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. I want you to imagine something with me. Imagine a perfect creation without any of the effects of sin, consequences of sin. No temptation, no crabby neighbors, no headaches, no backaches, no uh, frustrating coworkers. I mean, a perfect creation. Imagine a perfect creation where there's only perfect love for one another, only perfect joy, perfect worship. You kind of got an idea of that? Realize that's heaven. That's the glorious future that awaits all those whose hope is in the Lord Jesus. So this is the big storyline of the Bible, creation, fall, grace, glory. If you can remember those four words again, you've got sort of the summary of the Bible in a nutshell. Quickly, let's talk about one fourth and final question this morning. What's the main message of the Bible? What's the main message of the Bible? I mean, what's the Bible really all about? Again, don't say anything out loud, but maybe imagine how you'd answer that question for yourself. What's really the Bible all about? Is the message of the Bible, be a good person? Is it love your neighbor? Is it obey the Ten Commandments? Avoid wickedness? Do righteousness? Is it equal rights for all? What's really the Bible all about? I'm going to contend here that the main message of the Bible is this, and it's sort of a wordy phrase, but I'll explain it in a minute. I believe the main message of the Bible is this, God's glory in salvation through judgment. God's glory in salvation through judgment. I think this is really what brings it all together, brings unity to the whole. 
Now, for full disclosure, I need to tell you that I did not invent this phrase. This is actually the title of a good book by James Hamilton. James Hamilton wrote the book, God's Glory in Salvation Through Judgment, and he traces this theme in every book. Now, truth be told, this is probably not a book I'd recommend your average layperson. It's more like a seminary textbook than a book you might sit down to read for fun. But at the same time, if you're more academically minded and enjoy reading big books, it might be one for you to consider. Because again, he sees how this theme is evident in every single one of the 66 books of the Bible. But listen to what James Hamilton says about this theme. He says, throughout the Bible, those who experience God's deliverance experience it through his judgment. Judgment falls on the enemies of God so that God's people are delivered, but the saved themselves experience judgment before they enjoy the blessings of redemption. Noah and his family are saved through the waters of judgment. The children of Israel are delivered from slavery through God's judgment on Egypt. God makes himself both just and the justifier of the ungodly by saving those who understand that they are condemned. Their mouths are stopped. They understand that they fall short. And then they trust that God's justice has been met in Jesus. On the great day when all will be set right, salvation for God's people will come through the triumph of the king in judgment. The Bible's depictions of the outcome of all history indicate that everything will result in God being glorified for his justice and his mercy. Now, when we say that the Bible is about God's glory in salvation through judgment, what do we mean by that? Well, a few things. First, realize the Bible is not primarily about you. I know a lot of people don't like to hear that, but sorry, but I'm not sorry. The Bible is not primarily about you. It's about God. It's about God's plans, God's purposes, God's laws, God's works. Obviously, we play a role in that, but our role is always secondary. We're supporting characters at best. What this means is that whenever you read the Bible, the first question you should ask is not what I should do uh, here, but what does this passage teach me about God? You know, so for, for instance, the virgin birth passage, Matthew 1. If my first question is, what should I do? I'm quite confused. You know, should I, do I need to go and have a virgin birth? I mean, that doesn't seem to make any sense. But if I ask instead, what does this passage teach me about God, the power of God, the plan of God, then I'm asking the right question. So I'll always begin there. What does this passage teach me about God? But next we say that the Bible is about God's glory. God's glory. Realize this is the great motive behind everything that God does. God desires to be glorified. I remember as a child being taught that the reason God created humans was because he was lonely and wanted friends. Please don't tell children that. That is a lie. That is not why God created people. God created people not because he was lonely, but because he wanted his glory reflected in those created in his image. Totally different. Again, God's glory, his commitment to honoring himself and everything is the motive behind everything he does. Isaiah 48, 11, thus says the Lord, for my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. How should my name be profaned? My glory, I will not give to another. Then we say that the Bible is about God's glory in salvation. The Bible uses the term save or salvation or some synonym thereof around a thousand times. Sometimes this salvation is temporal, like when God delivers David from his enemies. Sometimes it's eternal, like when we are delivered from our sins by Jesus' death and resurrection. Other times it's both at the same time, like when Noah is rescued, both from the flood but also from condemnation. But this great work of saving, redeeming, rescuing, it characterizes so much of what's going on in Scripture. But consider lastly how this is not an arbitrary salvation. It's not just in thin air. You know, it's not as if God just like winks at our sins and they disappear. No, there is a judgment which must fall. 
We have sinned. We've rebelled against our Creator. And that's something massively important that can't just be swept under the rug. God glorifies Himself by judging, and yet in His mercy and grace, some are delivered from that judgment and saved. Now let's see if we can illustrate this. Let's put this hypothesis to the test. Can you see how God's glory in salvation through judgment is evident in, say, Noah's flood? I sure hope so. Obviously, in Noah's flood, judgment falls on the entire human race. Really, more than that, the plants and animals suffer as well. And yet, is there salvation? Of course, for Noah and his family. And interestingly, they are brought through that judgment by means of an ark. And what happens after the flood? Noah builds an altar and worships God. It's God's glory and salvation through judgment. Here's another example. Think about Israel's exodus from Egypt. Was there God's glory and salvation through judgment there? Of course. Israel had been slaves for 400 years to a wicked, cruel slave master. He's making them make bricks without straw. But then God raises up Moses, and Moses performs these plagues. And you've got to look at the plagues as acts of God's judgment. They're not just like weird natural disasters or something like that. It's God's active judgment through which Israel is saved, redeemed out of Egypt. And you've got to look at the waters of the Red Sea crushing the Egyptians as the same thing. It's God's judgment, and they're led on to the promised land. And what do they do in Genesis, or no, Exodus, I think it's 15, before they head on toward the promised land, they worship. That's the song of Moses, the horse and rider you've thrown into the sea. God's glory in salvation through judgment. One more example. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Is that about God's glory and salvation through judgment? I sure hope you think so. All of humanity, we fell under the curse of sin. We're all condemned, hell-bound sinners. And yet God in his mercy sends his son Jesus. Jesus lives the perfect life of obedience we should have lived. But then he dies. And why is he dying? He's taking the judgment our sins deserve. You know, the cross, really, at the end of the day, it's not a martyrdom. It's not an example to emulate, though it is in a secondary sense that. It's primarily the curse of God falling on Jesus in our place. But then God raises Jesus back from the dead to demonstrate that what he said about himself is true. He saves all those who believe, and we are transformed into what? Worshippers. I hope that's how you understand the gospel. It's God's glory in salvation through judgment. I'd encourage you to look for this theme everywhere in the Bible. Maybe discuss this in your growth groups or this afternoon around the dinner table. Talk about incidences such as the Tower of Babel or the sacrifice of Isaac. Rahab's deliverance, Samson's ministry, David's kingdom, Jonah's experience, Israel's exile. Can you see in these this theme of God's glory in salvation through judgment? And realize that all those little pictures are previews of the ultimate salvation that God's going to bring through Jesus' death and resurrection. Now to wrap up our time this morning, I know we've said an awful lot about the Bible. Talked about its impact, about its storyline, about the main message of Scripture. I hope you've seen at least the way in which the Bible is a truly remarkable book. But in conclusion, the question I want you to think about is this. How has the Bible impacted your life? And how might it? How has the Bible impacted your life and how might it? Chances are you've been impacted by the Bible uh, probably more than you realize. The language we use, the form of government we enjoy here in the United States, the fact that there is such a thing as freedom of religion, uh, the values of Western society, uh, such as every person having equal rights, all of these come straight from Scripture. And we enjoy all of them, even if, again, we think the Bible is poppycock. For those of us who are believers, the Bible has had an enormous impact on our lives for good, incalculable. It's through the Bible that we're born again, converted. 
It's through the Bible that our faith grows and is sustained. It's through the Bible that we're conformed increasingly to the image of God's Son. Marriages are restored, families strengthened, friendships built, addictions broken, bad habits shed through the power of God's Word. But again, I ask you, how has the Bible impacted your life, and how might it? If you're here today and you're not a Christian, not a believer on the Lord Jesus, again, thank you for coming. You're always welcome to be with us. Uh, maybe consider coming by every Sunday, 1045. You can get some free coffee, free donuts if there are any left. Uh, hopefully we'll model for you what it means to follow Jesus, and you can learn more about Scripture. But if you're here today and you're not a Christian, what I want you to think about is how those four words that summarize the storyline of the Bible... Those four words could become the storyline of your life. What do I mean by that? Well, think about that first word, creation. You were created to know God, created to relate to the Almighty as a heavenly Father. That's why you exist, to know and to enjoy and to trust God. It's your creation. And yet there's that second word, fall. When Adam fell, he took the entire race with him. And this is why we're born with hearts that already run from God. This is why we don't need to teach little children to lie, teach them to be cruel. They they kind of got that already in their system before they were even born. So Adam's fall has corrupted us. And to make things worse, like Adam, we too fall into our own sins. We, We make messes of our own making. Every day we break God's laws. And if you counted those up over the years, thousands of acts of rebellion against Almighty God, that's you and me creation, fall. And because God is a holy, righteous God, he will punish us for our sins. Somewhat in this life, and so much of the misery and pain that we experience is a direct result of our rebellion, but far, far worse in the life to come. A punishment really unspeakable for words. But here comes that next word, grace. Grace. God acted in love. God sent his son down from heaven. The eternal son of God, Jesus, he takes on flesh and blood and walks among us. He lived the perfect life of trust and obedience we should have lived. But then, like I've said, he died on the cross. And when he died on the cross, he took the judgment our sins deserve. All the wrath, all the curse of God, all the punishment we deserve for our rebellion, it falls on Jesus on the cross. He absorbs it completely so that there's nothing left for us to contribute. But then God raises him again from the dead to testify again that what he taught is true. And now, in response, Jesus is calling you. Turn from your sin. Trust in Jesus. Be saved. It's really simple as that. Stop running from God. Stop marching to the tune of your own drummer. Turn back. Rely on Jesus' death. Rely on Jesus' resurrection and enter into that gracious relationship with your creator that you were made for. All of that is of grace and that is the invitation we offer to you this morning. You cannot know God as your heavenly father without trusting in Jesus' son. But if you will trust in Jesus' son, you will enter back into that relationship you were made for. And here's the final word, glory. Your life story can be creation, fall, grace, glory. If you trust in Jesus, you'll immediately begin experiencing the glory of a church family who hopefully loves you by grace. Uh, The glory of a new nature that desires to do what's right. The, The glory of the indwelling Holy Spirit who's convicting us and transforming us. And yet that's not all. After this life, you'll enjoy the glory of a resurrection body. Uh, The glory of the new heavens and the new earth, the glory of a perfect world where there'll never be any suffering or pain or sickness or sorrow anymore. Whoever you are, you you have already experienced creation and fall, but we're offering to you this morning grace and glory. And this is why, in conclusion, I beg you to trust Jesus now. 
Trust him now. Again, Jesus' death and resurrection are the only hope you have of being made right with your creator, of experiencing that grace, experiencing that glory God is offering to you. Trust Jesus now. The Bible has had an enormous, incalculable impact on human history, and it's already had an enormous impact on your life. It recounts this amazing epic of creation, fall, grace, glory, but that same story can become the story of your life if you'll trust in Jesus. So again, trust him now. Come to Jesus now. And as always, if any of you would like to discuss these things further, would like some clarification on something that I've said, would like somebody to pray with you or pray for you, talk to me after this morning's service. I'll be at the front door to greet people on the way out. But trust Jesus today, and today begin experiencing God's glory in salvation through judgment. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, we do thank you so much for your word. Lord, you were not obligated to give it to us. You could have left us in ignorance and darkness. Lord, you weren't obligated to speak a single phrase to us. And yet you've given us so much, these 66 amazing, mighty books that transform us. Please, Lord, make us people that treasure your word. Lord, make us people that meditate on it day and night so that we might be careful to do according to all that's written in it. Lord, then you've promised that our way would be prosperous and then we'd have good success. Lord, for those in this room, again, who don't yet know you, work in their hearts, convict them of sin, draw them to yourself, and we pray that today they put their faith in the word incarnate, in Jesus, your son. It's in his name we pray, amen.